This morning we're going to be considering a portion of God's Word in the book of Matthew. So if you have not already, would you turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that are there in the seat back in front of you, uh, you will find the portion of Scripture, Matthew 7, on page 762. Matthew 7, let's begin reading at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father, who is your Father who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask Him? Let's take this scripture at face value and let's unite our hearts in prayer as we consider God's Word. Oh Lord, we praise you this morning for your good and holy and perfect Word, which we know is a light to our feet, it's a lamp to our path. We thank you that it has been written down for our own learning that we, through the patience and the comfort that comes to us by your scriptures, that we might have hope. And Lord, particularly, we thank you and we praise you for preserving the scriptures pure and complete for us. Lord, we are forever grateful that you've made them available to us in a language that we speak, in a language that we understand. Lord, guard us from receiving this wonderful gift of your grace in vain. Father, we pray specifically that you would open our eyes to see in Scripture a true light, your light, that brings joy to our heart. Lord, open our ears that we might hear this announcement of a Redeemer and a Savior, of a redemption and salvation through Him. And Father, help me, your servant, to be faithful to your word this morning, that I might announce and proclaim, plead and teach according to your good pleasure. Lord, and in your great kindness and according to your promise, cause your word to bear good fruit among us this morning. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning you hold in your hands a Bible. Within this book, from Genesis to Revelation, it tells a single story that announces who we are, who God is, and his goal for all of his creation. As you probably know, it's a magnificent story. That as you read through it, it puts God's grace and God's power on full display. Because within this story, within this ark, we hear of this creation, this great fall that grieves us, but then the great hope of redemption and the anticipation, finally, of restoration. As you read through this book from cover to cover, you find that what begins in Eden is eventually resolved in the book of Revelation, And in between those two bookmarks lies all of this detail about how God would bring about this great plan which he has set forth in this book. What is that aim? What are those details? What is that plan? Well, it's a promise, it's a refrain, it's a hope, and eventually it is an announcement that is finally accomplished and it can be summarized and repeated as this. 
behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is the announcement in Eden. And that is the eventual resolution in the new Eden. The book of Revelation. What this book announces is that sinners, though lost and ruined by the fall, are made fit to dwell with this holy God, and that this holy God delights to dwell with his people. We were made for communion with God, or if you like, friendship with God. Have you fathomed that? Have you begun just to meditate upon that? Perhaps you have a high sense of the the holiness of God and the majesty of God. And yet, even in his holiness and his majesty, the scriptures announce that he delights to dwell, to befriend, to come alongside his people. Consider what this book teaches. The one who made the universe, who made everything in it. The God who's more holy and glorious and powerful than we could ever begin to understand with our finite minds. That God seeks to dwell with his people and for his people to peacefully dwell with him. And if this is true, and if this is the thrust of the entire book, if this is the announcement of the scriptures, then prayer is the natural reflection of this relationship. Prayer is the fitting response to and for a people who've been rescued and redeemed, forgiven, and adopted. Prayer is this great expression of our reconciliation to God that he provides for his people. And so it's for these reasons that I want us to spend a few moments this morning in Matthew 7, hearing the words of Jesus and considering the wonderful promise and privilege that we've been given in prayer. What we find here in this scripture is that the exhortation to pray, it's not a burdensome requirement. Perhaps you've thought of prayer in that way. Perhaps you've even felt that as you've come to pray. It's not a burdensome requirement that we're guilted into, but actually it's a joyous privilege grounded in the goodness and mercy of God. And I would go a step further and say, prayer will remain a burdensome requirement until you see the goodness and mercy of God. Consider how Jesus unpacks this. First of all, in verse 7, he just gives us this exhortation to pray. The exhortation to pray back in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This is not the first time that Jesus has set out to teach his disciples on prayer. He's already given extensive teaching back in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. If you turn over there and glance down, it'll probably look very familiar to you. A pattern of prayer that Christ has given to his disciples to say, when you pray, pray in this manner. So having laid really the foundation for prayer and how we ought to pray, now he comes along and he gives the encouragement and he says, pray. Continue to pray. You know as well as I do that one of the great challenges in prayer is believing that prayer is actually a fruitful exercise and worthwhile for us to commit ourselves to. 
We know it intellectually. We can put the dots and connect them and align them and say, this is God and this is who we are and prayer is talking to God. But it is still a requirement that we come in faith because every time that we are instructed to pray or we desire to pray, it is a wrestling with what we see and what we know by faith. Because after all, we pray to a God we cannot see. We talk to God, but we don't have audible feedback. We say amen, but rarely do we see immediate changes from the very things that we just prayed for. It's for this reason, I believe, that Jesus exhorts us to ask, to seek, and to knock. Now, some of the emphasis is lost on us in our English translations as these commands are given in a certain tense that express not only the the exhortation to pray, but to do it and keep on doing it. Uh, The present imperative for you grammar students, meaning ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. That's the tone. That's the exhortation. Perhaps you picture a parent with a, a timid child trying to learn how to hammer a nail or trying to roll out cookies on the counter next to you. And sometimes in that learning process, a parent just needs to give a bit of encouragement and just saying, there you go, keep, keep going, just like that. Yep, just like that, keep going a little further. Yep, keep going. And it's just that coming alongside to exhort. Our ex- exhortation to pray and encouragement to pray here is very similar, I believe. Consider the way that these exhortations relate to one another. He says, ask. Well, ask is just a general term in its context. It just means go to God. In a sense, Christ is just saying, ask him. Go on, just ask him. This encouragement just to begin to open your mouth and to speak. Speak up, ask him. But he follows up and he says, seek. And keep on seeking. Well, this implies that we may not know exactly what we are looking for or how to go about it. I'm I'm seeking this out. As a child who asks a mother who's close by, but when cannot see his mother, he'll seek her out. I know what I'm seeking. I'm, I, I'm just, I need to press in a little bit further. It's not as simple as just saying, hey, mom, and she's right there. I'm going to go into the bedroom, in the kitchen. I'm going to go upstairs, out into the garage. I'm seeking. And he says, knock. I think this implies that we're, in a sense, seeking something that's inaccessible to us, that's beyond our abilities. We've tried and we've failed to obtain something. And as we often say, the door's not open to me. And so Jesus says, well, then knock. We are to knock because he tells us it will be opened. On the surface, the exhortation here is towards persistence and, and prevailing in prayer. Ask, seek, knock, keep doing it, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And you can hear that. And on the surface, this exhortation towards persevering in prayer or prevailing prayer, maybe it sounds like a contradiction to you. Because if God already knows, then why pray? And if God has heard me, then why should I keep asking? Well, remember, we must always read and respond to God's word in light of God's word. If he says that he's sovereign 
then he's sovereign. If he says that he hears our prayers, then he hears our prayers. And if he says to pray and to keep on praying, then we must also pray and keep on praying. We never pit the teaching of Scripture against itself. We never pit God's sovereignty and his listening ear against the exhortation to pray and to keep on praying. We don't cherry-pick certain portions of Scripture and hold them up and exclude others. We put all of them in the same basket and say, this is the instruction we've been given. I know He is sovereign. And I know that He hears me. And I know that He tells me to pray, and not just pray once, but to ask and to seek and to knock and to keep on doing it. And so I put all these things in front of me and I say, this is what I will give myself to. In Luke 11... Verse 5, Jesus tells this parable about a man who lacked food to feed a guest who arrived at his, his home at midnight. And so he goes to his neighbor. And at first the neighbor did not want to be bothered, but at last he gave in to the persistence of this man and his knocking and his request to food, and he, he gave him what he asked for. And then Jesus, he repeats his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, and he applies this exhortation to this parable by saying, ask will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Later in Luke 18, Jesus tells another parable of a widow who gained justice from a dishonest judge because of a similar approach, because of her persistence, the judge gave in. And then Jesus draws the application by saying, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen one who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? It's the lesser to the greater. If this unjust judge responds, How much more so your heavenly Father who is perfectly just? Yet another exhortation to persevere, to persist in prayer. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Pray continually. He would write to the Romans, In 1530, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. The underlying thrust and tone of this exhortation here in Matthew 7 is that we ought to be praying and go on praying because our asking and our seeking and our knocking, it's not going to fall upon deaf ears. Luther, in his pastoral wisdom and counsel, comments and said, The Father knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to Him. We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we dare not pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts, and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. Ask, seek, and knock. Church, Christ would have us to be a a, a praying people. He bids us to come. This is his word to us this morning. He is the resurrected Christ. And he stands and he teaches and calls out the very same truth this morning because he is unchanging, he is eternal, and his heart for his people is unmoved. And so he speaks to us this morning and says, ask and keep on asking. Seek and, and keep on seeking. You've been knocking. Keep on knocking. And whether it be in times of corporate prayer where we gather together or individually throughout the day, Christ would exhort us and remind us to pray. 
and to continue to pray and to persevere in asking and seeking and knocking. There's not simply this exhortation, but Christ moves further and he he moves into the encouragement as to why we ought to pray. He, He throws the arrow out, as it were, and says, pray. And then he exhorts us as to why we should run after it in that direction. What's the encouragement? We'll look back at verse 8, because he really gives two encouragements. He says that we will most certainly be answered, and secondly, it will be the best answer. Notice how it lays out in verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. We are encouraged to pray because primarily we will be answered. Now, do you ever stop to think about what we're actually doing when you pause, you bow your head, and you say, Father, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you ever stop just to consider what you're actually doing there? As jaw-dropping as the reality is that God himself hears us, Jesus goes a step further and says, not only does he hear you, but I promise you that he answers you. Don't ever let this wonderful truth escape your thoughts as you consider saying, our Father in heaven. Not only does he say, yes, I hear you. He delights to say, yes, I will answer you. I'm not just taking requests. I'm not just listening and jotting them down for my own catalog of purposes, taking a survey of, what people seem to be asking for. He delights to hear from his children because he delights to answer his children. And Christ tells us that in asking, it will result in receiving. Seeking will result in finding. And knocking upon an apparent closed door, you will find actual open doors. He simply repeats to us what he said in verse 7 to assure us of his certainty. When you pray... You will be heard and answered, so pray. I don't often fish, but when I do, it's usually with somebody better than myself. And I like that. Because when they say, hey, you you should cast right over there. See that rock and that riffle that comes out right there. I like that. Because that means I'm usually going to catch something. And when you pray you will be heard and answered. In this sense, when Christ exhorts us to pray, he assures us that when you do, you will be answered. He says, hey, right there, go ahead, pray. Because what happens when you begin to pray, when you begin to seek, when you begin to knock, is that I guarantee you, you will have an answer. Prayer is the means by which God has chosen to bring about what we need and what he wills. How mind-blowing is that? The God who is sovereign over all things. The God who is in himself complete and lacking nothing, needing no one. The God who's created all things out of nothing. In his wisdom and in his kindness, he has chosen the prayer would be the means by which he brings about what we need and what he wills. So we pray confident that he will answer. But it gets even better. We pray 
Not simply because we will be answered, but we are encouraged to pray because it will be the best answer. Look at how Jesus teaches this in verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, these verses are tremendously important because they teach what the effective power of our prayer really is. When Jesus says to ask and to keep on asking, to seek and to keep on seeking, to knock and to keep on knocking, his point is not that our persistence is what wins the day, but shows us here in this example that it's the very character of God that actually brings about the answers that we are seeking. It brings about the confidence that we would have. This is so important, because if we were just to stop at verse 8, I would imagine that many of us would begin to be guilted or for some other lesser motivation to ask and to seek and to knock, convincing ourselves somehow that it is the tone in which we pray or it is the length in which we pray or even the posture in which we pray, that that will be the thing that will cause me to seek and to find and receive. But Jesus is so clear and he says, though this is the means by which God will bring this about, do not begin to think, It is your zeal, or it is your tone, or it is your faithfulness. He anchors everything in the character of God. Jesus uses this familiar lesser to greater kind of teaching analogy to make his point. He talks about the difference between earthly parents and a heavenly father. Earthly parents, even though they are wrecked and ruined by sin, still desire to give their children what is good. No good parent says here, uh, this rock is brown and it's roundish and it kind of looks like bread. Have this. I know you asked for bread, but here's a rock. No good parent says, look, I know you asked for a fish. Uh, A snake has scales and so does a fish, so I'm giving you a snake instead of a fish. The absurdity of what Jesus is pointing out is, is very apparent to us. And so he says, how much more so? Will your father, who has no speck of evil, who is untainted by sin, who is perfectly holy and good and righteous, how much more so will he give good to those who ask him? Now, as earthly parents, we understand that our children may often ask for that which would be unhelpful or even harmful to them, and so we do not give it. We say no. How much more so our Heavenly Father who sees with perfect wisdom, that that He knows us with absolute thoroughness, the hairs on our heads, the thoughts in our brains, the words before we speak them. Think of the Psalm 139 understanding of the Lord's knowledge of us and the situation. That our Heavenly Father sees with perfect clarity and wisdom. He's infinitely good and only and always does what is righteous. So if we ask for something that is not ultimately for our good, we can rest assured that He will only give us the best response. And likewise, how often do children ask for good things, but 
parents are unable to supply. Perhaps you've felt the sting of that in your life as well. Finite parents with limited resources, limited energy, and limited influence often have to say no to good things. But this is never the case with our Heavenly Father. He is infinite. He's unchanging. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. And if there there is ever a good thing His children lack, He will never fail to provide it. How much greater is our Heavenly Father than any earthly parent? Both in what He says no to and what He says yes to. Ask, seek, and knock. Church, that means that we can pray with all confidence, we can pray with all perseverance, because our Heavenly Father will never give us anything but the best, and He will never fail to provide the good that we need. That is the great motivation behind our prayer. Not only does He hear me, but He will answer me, and all His answers will be good. Church, what we're saying is we pray, and we continue to pray, and we have confidence in prayer, because God is and because of who he is. What this means in very tangible terms is that when we pray, we must begin with God. But how often we forget this step. This means that God must always be the starting point when we begin to say and ask and seek and knock. One author put it this way, The problem is that if God is not the starting point, then our own perceived emotional needs become the drivers and sole focus of our prayer. We should not decide how to pray based on the experiences and feelings we want. Instead, we should do everything possible to behold our God as He is, and prayer will follow. The more clearly we grasp who God is, the more our prayer will be shaped and determined accordingly. Easier said than done. We would all say amen to that, but we know the struggle in that. Because when we are overwhelmed and we are convinced, I actually need to ask, I can't do this on my own. I think a lot of my life I can just handle myself with my own wisdom, but for some reason, in God's particular mercy, I'm convinced this is bigger than me. I'm going to go to Him in prayer. And we begin with our particular need. We begin with our deficit. We begin with our grief. We begin with our bitterness. And then we launch into asking and seeking and knocking. But what Christ would compel us to do and to see is that we begin with God. And our confidence to persevere in prayer remains the same. It is His good character. This is why we need the transforming work of the Spirit to illuminate and to apply God's Word to us. That we pray in accordance with God's Word. That's how we're helped. Who is this God? How do we know Him? What do the scriptures principally teach? What we're to know about God and how we're to obey Him. Most often our prayers are shaped by circumstances, by affliction, by difficulty, by excitement, by anticipation. And so we start with our perception of how things are and we begin to ask in a certain direction and continue to seek and continue to knock. But by contrast, the scriptures would compel us to start with who God is, what he's declared to be, what he's proven himself to be, and then bring that reality to bear upon my bitterness, my hurt, my confusion, my lack, 
my need. That I give time then to consider His authority over all creation. That He spoke the universe into existence. That He upholds all things by the word of His power. And then I consider my need in light of that reality. That I give time to consider His perfect wisdom. That He's not reactionary in His dealings with us like I so often am. Because He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. That He sees your future with perfect clarity. That He works with explicit intentionality. That He knows what we don't. And He's directing all things to the course of His perfect and glorious glory. Think upon His compassion. Think upon His perfect wisdom. Think upon His eternal goodness. And most often, and most frequently, think, church, upon the highest and deepest expression of His care, the giving of His Son. What I'm saying is illuminate your need by the light of His glory. And then ask. And then seek. And then knock. Consider a couple of implications of what Jesus is teaching here. If this is true, well then what does this mean about us? For one, what does my lack of prayer reveal about me? What does your lack of prayer reveal about you? Essentially, our lack of prayer is the fruit of our ignorance of God Himself. We can say busyness. We can say fatigue. We can say pain. We can say hurt. But underneath all of those, there is something that is greater still. Because if those were the greatest things, the truest truth that dictated everything in your life, that would mean that God is not who He says He is. My lack of prayer reveals my ignorance of who God is. I do not pray or I do not pray as I ought because I really don't know or I really don't believe just how great and how good this Father is that I seek. Because when I begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, when I begin to have my eyes open to the perfect goodness of His authority, holiness, sovereignty, majesty, and mercy, then I am compelled to pray. In my weakness, in my pain, in my grief, I come to this God in light of who He is through all these things. Do you want to grow in prayer? Tom mentioned that this morning. If we took a survey this morning, they just simply said, how's your prayer life? The ignorant would rank it a 10 out of 10. The honest would be much lower than that. We all have this gnawing sense of, I don't pray as I want. I don't pray as often as I want. I don't pray as heartfelt as I want. Friend, if that is true of you this morning, then hear the good news of Scripture. It's not a burdensome task to then say, then pray more so that you build up some endurance. It is to say, look more. Look at who this God is and build up some awe and reverence because it is out of the overflow of our understanding of who God is that we are compelled to seek Him. What our lack of prayer says about us is our lack of understanding of who God is. Perhaps, though, you've prayed and you've not received. 
See, your problem is not that I failed to pray. It's that you don't understand. I have been praying. I've been asking. My knuckles appear to be calloused because of the amount of knocking over these years and decades. And I have no answer. What could that possibly mean? What does the Word of God have to say to me? Well, if we take Jesus' words at face value, that would have to mean that your request at this moment is not ultimately for your good. For if it were, your Father would give it to you. Because He's not prohibited or inhibited from giving good things. And He only gives what is best. So if in this season you've been asking and seeking and knocking and you seem to have no response, what that means is that in this season, in this moment, it is not your best. And therefore He has not given it. And so we continue. Rest assured, as one author succinctly put, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He knows. But how often we forget. God, this is what I know, so why aren't you giving it? But how many of us are pacing back and forth, asking God for stones and serpents, convincing ourselves that they are the good gifts of bread and fish? And he says, I won't do that. If your father has chosen not to give you something, according to Jesus, you must see it as a good gift. He owns everything. He knows what is best. And Christian, he adores you. He delights in you. He's adopted you as a son. There's nothing that he withholds. He has offered up his son. How will he not also freely give us all good things? If he has not answered this prayer, as you would see fit, we see it as a good gift. He knows what is best, and he adores his children. Therefore, we seek him, and then we rest in his provision. Church, I I pray that the Holy Spirit would press this truth of Scripture into our hearts. How greatly we need to see it. For when He does, when the Spirit of God illuminates this truth to our lives, it permeates not just what we know in our heads, but the very loves that we love, the will that we choose, the the hands that we put our hands out to and, and say, I will do this. When the Scripture transforms the entirety of of who we are, how we think, how we feel, and how we live. Then we're enabled to see and to face what are seeming disappointments, denied applications, pink slips, infertility, chronic pain, terminal diagnosis, financial ruin, all with a settled commitment that we can say, I've prayed. The Lord has answered, and all his ways are good. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him.
Now, let's be honest about what the scriptures teach. God is not only a loving father. He's also a righteous judge. Have you felt some of that tension already when you've been thinking through this call to pray? When we meditate upon God's character, we must do so honestly and fully. Do you remember Moses? Exodus 34. Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. The character of God. How often have you read these verses and trailed off when you came towards the end? Do you know what I mean? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Has that given you pause before? When I said we must consider the character of God, if we want to consider true motive and prayer, we must be honest with the scriptures and allow the scriptures to illuminate all that we know of God. And everything that God reveals himself there to Moses is true. That is who he is. How do we reconcile this reality of a God who says that he is merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty? That's particularly troubling when you come to pray. How can I ask him for something when I know I don't deserve to be heard? Much worse, I know I'm not blameless. I have sin. And I know that I deserve judgment, not provision from his hand. How can a person honestly expect to be heard by God and answered by this God if God is perfectly holy and I'm full of deceit? Well, in order to answer this very valid question, a question you must wrestle with, we need to keep in mind what the Gospels reveal and what the Epistles explain. We are assured that the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, will answer His people when we call because one horrible day He did not answer Jesus when He called. That is the substance. That is the foundation and the very reason that we can find some sort of reality to this this revelation of who God is. He is merciful, and at the same time, He does not clear the guilty. Jesus prayed in the garden that this cup would pass from Him, that the cross might be taken from Him. And yet, He was delivered up, He was condemned, and He was crucified. And even more, Upon that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his answer was silence and darkness. How could this possibly be? Because do you know anything about Jesus? He was the perfect man. He was the only one who honored and served God with his all. The only one who always loved his neighbor as himself. Sinners deserve to have their prayers unanswered. Jesus was the only person who deserved to have all of his prayers answered, and yet he was turned down on the cross. Well, the answer for why this is, is the declaration that the gospel makes. God treated Jesus as his people deserve, so that when we believe in him, God treats us as Jesus deserved. Or to put it in Paul's 
language, for the sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And so it's for this very reason, and this reason alone, that when a Christian prays, they pray in all boldness. They pray with great awe, and they pray in all humility, confident that their God is their Father and not their judge, and that He hears and that He answers. Again, our motivation to pray, it's not our zeal, it's not our volume of our voice, it's not the feeling that we may or may not get after we say amen. Our motivation and our confidence in prayer is driven by this gracious announcement of the gospel. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What this is saying is that God has rescued a people for himself and he lavishes love and grace and favor and mercy upon them. So we pray in response to and because of this wonderful news. We pray in all confidence, not looking to ourselves, but in all confidence looking to Christ. This means that the Christian and the Christian alone has the answer to our original dilemma. How can God hear and answer the prayer of sinners? Well, we come by faith in the name of Christ, who's our perfect mediator, atoning for our sins, covering us in our righteousness, and we say, our Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, who is our perfect mediator, the one who's given himself for our sin and for our salvation. We come to you in the name of his atoning blood, his righteous life, his sacrificial death. We come to you on the basis of your promise that you said whoever would believe in him would not be cast out, but that you would receive. And so we come on his merit, trading on his credit, and we ask, and we seek, and we knock. We come by faith in the name of Christ, who's our perfect mediator. What this means is that Jesus took the stone and the snake so that we could have the food at the Father's table. He was starved so that we might live. He took the venom of death so that we might have life. When we cry out, my God, we know that God will answer because God did not answer when Christ cried out, my God. Friend, do you know God this way? Christian, do you have this sort of confidence in prayer? Christ speaks to us through his word this morning and he compels us. He exhorts us. He draws us. He assures us. His death is sufficient payment to cover the guilt of sin. The payment that he offers is what reconciles sinners to himself, and brings us into this wonderful relationship whereby God is no longer against you. All that he is in all of his character and all of his eternality is now for you in grace, for your good, and for his glory. And so his people respond in prayer and they say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. 
We come with all confidence and we come with all delight because of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the very essence of the gospel, that the Father gives. That's who he is. And he delights to give good in Christ. We come to the one who gives not only everything that we need, but ultimately the one who gave his son for the sins of his people. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. That is the prayer of one who's tasted mercy and is confident of the God that they seek. Let's look to this God now. Father, what a great privilege to speak and not be silenced when in every right you would have every reason to close our mouths and tell us to cease and desist. But Lord, that you tell us to open our mouths to seek, to knock, to ask. Lord, what tremendous mercy, what tremendous grace that you've given to us in your Son. What great confidence that you've given to us to pour out our hearts before you, to commit our ways to you, to cast our cares upon you, to confess our sins to you. Lord, you have been so kind to us in your Son. Help us to see in this great kindness your great love for us, great affection, grace, and favor that you delight to bestow upon us as your children. And Lord, in seeing who you are and how good and how kind you've been to us, Lord, would you grow us and cause us and strengthen us to be a people who delight to respond to you in prayer. Father, we long to know of more of this great experience of of asking and seeking and knocking and receiving Gladly receiving the good response that you delight to give and the good answers that you always give. So, Father, grow us in assurance and confidence, the sort of assurance and confidence that's grounded in the goodness of the gospel, the great declaration of what you've done in your Son for us, we pray. Amen.